Hello, greetings, thanks for your interest in spiritual things. My name is Ethan and I work with the Venice Church of Christ. We're disciples making disciples in the west side of Los Angeles. In John chapter 7, beginning in verse 45, The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees, who said to them, Why did you not bring Jesus? The answer, officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. This is a great truth that these officers who were sent to arrest Jesus expressed, that no one had ever spoken the way that he had spoken. Even people who may not be entirely on board with the idea of Jesus as the Lord and Christ still recognize that he is a very great and effective teacher. If we are followers of Jesus, we do well to learn from Jesus, to consider him our master, our rabbi, and our teacher. As can be seen in Matthew 10, 24 and 25, 11, 29, and Mark 9 and verse 5, and chapter 11, verse 21. There's a lot of benefits that we can get when we look at his actual instructions, the things that he taught. Ethics and morality, for instance, as we can see in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7. We learn a lot about the kingdom it's in parables in Matthew 13 or other passages. There's a lot we can learn from apocalyptic expectations in Matthew chapter 24 and 25. And it's always good and profitable for considering the things that Jesus has trained us to understand and to listen to his actual words of instruction. But there's also great benefit that we can gain from seeing how and why Jesus taught as he did. To explore Jesus as the master teacher. And so, why don't we, from the pages of scripture, consider how Jesus trained his disciples. Let's find out why it was so necessary that he needed to do this work. Who did you select and why? And how, how do you go about training them? And what can we learn from this whole circumstance about discipleship and instruction? Now, Jesus begins instructing us about training and discipleship by underscoring the importance of training and discipleship. And this gets us back to a very fundamental question. How does the gospel get communicated? It's very easy for us today to imagine that the communication of the gospel is ensured by the transmission of the text of the scriptures. And there's no doubt that the text of the scriptures is of great importance, and we need to continue to transmit it. In 2 Timothy 3, 16-17, the scripture uh, is inspired and, and equips the man of God for every good work. But there's also a statement that Paul made to Timothy earlier in that letter that also uh, underscores uh, the, the importance of teaching what is taught in scripture. In 2 Timothy chapter 2 and in verse 2, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So what Paul, Timothy had heard from Paul in the presence of other witnesses regarding the gospel, Timothy was now supposed to go and to entrust to faithful men who would go out and ostensibly do the same thing. This may seem very strange to say, and, and you may, may think that this is absolutely crazy, but the mere text of Scripture is insufficient. And even the text of Scripture recognizes this. In 2 Peter 3 and verse 16, Peter warns that those who are unstable uh, tw twist and rest the Scriptures uh, to their own destruction. And so from the beginning until now, the gospel has been communicating by its preaching by faithful men. That's why in Romans 12, 10 through 8, 12 through 18, when Paul wants to express how, how, how the gospel is communicated, it's not writing down the book. It's that people are sent out to preach, and faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. So, 
Timothy was to take what he had learned from Paul and entrust it to others. Where did Paul learn it from? Well, in Galatians 1, 11 through 12, he said he received his understanding by a revelation from Jesus. And so, extremely important for us to understand that we need to communicate the gospel. We need to teach the gospel as we have been taught the gospel. It's not enough to just say, hey, the message is in the book because the book is so often misused. Now, we might imagine that Jesus, as a teacher, would have spent most of his time instructing the multitudes. And there's a lot of times that Jesus instructs the multitudes of people in the Gospels. But in the Gospels, Jesus actually spends most of his time training the Twelve. Now, to many of us, that would seem completely ridiculous. Wait a second, wait a second. This guy's got the most important thing going on here, and he focuses only on 12 guys? Why shouldn't this go to thousands or millions of people? We might think he's not reaching enough people. We need to realize he's the master teacher, not us, and that we should learn from him. After all, we don't have any recorded writings of Jesus from Jesus himself. Everything that we know about him comes through the preaching of the gospel by the apostles as recorded in the gospels. Jesus instructed and trained the twelve. The ter- twelve in turn trained and instructed the next generation, and so on to this day. And that is why it's not for nothing that Jesus, in giving the Great Commission, in Matthew 28, 18-20, to, to go out and make disciples. Yes, God is interested in the salvation of as many people as possible in 1 Timothy 2 and verse 4. But this does not mean that God wants a factory-made Christians. Throughout the New Testament, emphasis is placed on personal encouragement and development. And that's what we see in Jesus, the model. He pours himself into the twelve. And the twelve each pour themselves into disciples. And that expands the kingdom through personal work and influence. And so if we all do the work said in 2 Timothy 2.2, where the message we have heard in the presence of many witnesses, that the gospel, uh, we are to entrust the faithful men who can teach others. The gospel can continue to be proclaimed powerfully, not just in the spoken message, but also in the embodied practice and encouragement throughout the world. Now, it's also important to note not just that they needed to uh, to, to learn about the gospel, but that the, there's a need for discipleship. These 12, uh, Jesus did not consider to be really ready when, when called and just needing a tweak or two. Uh, they did have natural talents, but these natural talents were not sufficient of themselves. All of them, no matter their standing when they were called, needing training and development, they weren't going to naturally become the men that God would have them to be. And none would have intuited how God was going to fulfill all that he had spoken by the prophets about Jesus. They'd have to see it happen for them to uh, understand it and to learn about it. Uh, 1 Corinthians 1, Ephesians 3, and 1 John 1. That's why Paul will say that the natural man will not understand these things. That we have to have spiritual discernment, and that only comes through what God has revealed to us in 1 Corinthians 2. And that is why we're all called to be disciples and to make disciples. So it's so important uh, that we are to be the disciples of Christ. Disciples, and we're supposed to be making disciples. That's that's underscore what we're trying to do here at Venice. And whatever talents that we have need to be refined and properly directed that we may serve one another in 1 Peter 4, 10 through 11. And so there's a lot that we have to learn from Jesus' words and example. Just as Christians considered themselves disciples long after having originally heard the gospel, we do well to recognize our continual need to learn from Jesus' words and example, even if we think we know it very well. 
uh, in verse Acts eleven twenty six twenty in verse chapter twenty verse thirty. These are terms of the they're called disciples many years after they have converted, and this goes back to First John two three through six that we have come to know him, we keep his commandments, and we need to walk even as he walked. And so Jesus needed to call and train disciples in order to accomplish his mission. And so disciples are still being called to this day, and they still need training. Now, when we look in the scripture in the Gospels, we can see circles of association and connection with Jesus. Because Jesus did preach to and teach the multitudes. And there are a lot of many multitudes who followed him. We can see that in Matthew 4 and many other places. In Luke 10, there's a discrete group called the 70 or the 72. And these are distinct from the 12. And in Luke 10, these 70 or 72 are sent out with a limited commission in his name to proclaim the message. But when we think of the disciples, we think first and foremost of the 12 that Jesus called and trained. In Matthew 10, other passages, he specifically calls out those 12 men. And as Jesus trains and instructs his disciples, yes, a lot of times the 70 and women and others are present and receive instruction. It's the 12 that Jesus is uh, really focusing on of his greatest concern, and they are definitely present. So who are these guys? Well, we meet them again in Matthew chapter 10 and in parallel passages in Mark, Luke, and John. In Matthew 10, they are Simon, called Peter, Andrew, his brother, James, son of Zebedee, John, his brother, Philip, Bartholomew, Thomas, and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon, the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed them. We know from Matthew 4, 18-22, that four of them are Galilean fishermen, Simon, Andrew, James, and John. So we mentioned Matthew, or called Levi in Luke, is called a, is a tax collector. Simon the Canaanite, on the other side of the political, political spectrum, was a zealot. Judas is from Carioth in Judah. The rest are Galileans. We're not told a lot about their backgrounds, but we don't get any indication that any of them were from the upper classes. They don't seem to have any specialized religious training, at least. Some were likely at least somewhat educated, but none seemed to be, for instance, at Paul's level of re- instruction or rhetorical skill. And so, in short, if you're going to try to set up a kingdom, there's really n- not a lot that you would see in these 12 guys to think that they should maintain in major administrative positions. So this has led to one of the eternal questions. Why would Jesus select these kind of guys? And it's a difficult question. And sometimes, with questions like these, it's easier to figure out what he wasn't looking for than perhaps what he was. Uh, as we see in Acts 4.13, when they were seen as, uh, Peter and John were seen as ignorant and unlearned, he didn't require a high-level education. He didn't require them to have come from a particularly elevated class or to have already received a significant edu- religious education. He did not require a well-developed, established, accurate understanding of the nature of the Messiah of his work. He didn't require a specific political ideology. And especially as we see how throughout the time he works with them, uh, there's no expectation they would come to a full and immediate understanding of his purposes. We can see that in Matthew 20, even all the way in Acts 1 and verse 6. And in fact, many times the disciples would almost be easily written off as untrainable, maintain their own petty squabbles, continually not understanding Jesus or his work. Uh, think about Peter all the time and how he rebukes Jesus for saying he's going to go and die. Uh, we can see they're arguing amongst themselves all the time. Who's the greatest? Matthew 16, Mark 9, Luke 9 even unto the end in Luke 22:24. So what many of us would seek from the set of disciples would have disqualified them in the sight of Jesus for his purposes. And that's important. The things we think would be important, that Jesus could have gotten that and intentionally didn't. 
probably because he was looking, first and foremost, for teachability. Who would prove willing to follow him wherever he would go? And that's why we see such a great example of, of Peter in John chapter 6, uh, no doubt speaking for the whole. Uh, when he asked, Jesus asked him, do you want to go his way as well? And Simon says, Lord, whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. For all the time Simon Peter failed, he, when he was right, he was very right. That they were willing to be convinced that Jesus is the Holy One of God, and he had the words of eternal life, and there's nowhere else that they could go, even if they didn't understand or were confused or just couldn't even begin to make sense of what was going on. The twelve also proved willing to try and fail and learn from their failures. John wanted to bring fire upon the Samaritans in Mark 9, but he would learn and become the apostle of love in 1 John 4, 7-21. Peter blustered how many times, denied the Jesus once, but he didn't do it again afterward in Matthew 26. And then we see him standing boldly for Jesus in Acts chapters 4 and 5. Thomas was as resolute in his confession that Jesus was Lord and God as he was in needing evidence for the resurrection in John chapter 20. And notice that above all things, Jesus did not judge the twelve based on their current condition so as to miss or neglect what they could and would become. Again, if we just looked at the disciples on the basis of what they said and did in the Gospels, we'd think that Jesus' whole project would be a complete failure. There's no doubt that the transformation of the disciples in the book of Acts was helped by the Holy Spirit. But even then, it was only made possible because they had been with Jesus and were witnesses of his life, death, and resurrection. In fact, as in all things related to Jesus, in the disciples, God had lifted up what was humble and of little esteem to a place of pride of place and standing. Just like we see in Mary's song in Luke 1, 40-53, that that's what God is doing in Jesus. Jesus was no doubt aware of Simon and all the weaknesses Simon had, but he saw in Simon the leader that Apostle Peter would become in John 1 and verse 42. And that's the way it was with the rest of the twelve. Jesus did not choose them because of who they were at the present, but because of what they would become when they learned of him and followed his ways. And that's an incredibly important lesson for us to learn. We, when we proclaim the gospel, tend to judge people based on their current situation. And we think that the people who are more like us are much better prospects than those who aren't. But how many times are we able to reach people who are like us? How often are we actually better able to reach those who are more unlike us? Of course, the hope of God in Christ is a transformation of a person from worldly to somebody who looks a lot more like Jesus in Romans 8 and verse 29. Now, we would most likely have written off the Twelve as hopelessly ignorant, too politically motivated, too morally compromised, or some other reason. But we do better if we get past looking at what people look like. And to now, so that we can see what they can be in the kingdom of God. So Jesus selected these Twelve, and he knew he needed to train them. So how did he do that? How did he go about training these Twelve? Well, as would be expected, a lot of the training did feature oral instruction. They heard what Jesus taught to the multitudes. In Luke 5, uh, Simon, when they're called, they're in the boats. Uh, They're letting Jesus use the boats to teach the people. Uh, He's easier to project to the crowds on the shore. Uh, So they're probably hearing a little bit while they're working. In Matthew 5-7, through the Sermon on the Mount is spoken to the disciples, but it's in the hearing of the multitude. In Matthew 13, the twelve heard the parables that Jesus gave to the multitudes. 
Now, Jesus would provide explanation or expansion of what he taught the multitudes to the twelve at other opportunities. So, the parables, uh, for instance, in Matthew 15, Mark 4, 7, and Luke 8, there are times where Jesus will explain more about them afterward uh, in ways he didn't explain to the crowds. The teaching about marriage and divorce in Mark 10 is framed so that he gives a quick answer to the Pharisees, and then Jesus provides greater explanation to the disciples later on. But there's a lot of times where Jesus is providing specific instruction to the disciples, and specifically to the twelve. So the instruction and the commission in Matthew 10, especially, maybe also Luke 10. The explanation of apocalyptic expectations, the destruction of Jerusalem, and then of the end of days in Matthew 24 through and 25. And then, of course, there's a very long discourse from John 13 through chapter 16 that Jesus gives to the twelve before his death. And after he is raised from the dead, Luke 24, 27, and verses 44 through 47, he explains from Moses and the prophets all the things concerning himself in his life, death, and resurrection. But it's very important for us to recognize that Jesus did not approach this training of the Twelve as if it's an academic context, where he just makes lectures and gives tests and assigns grades at the end of it all. He also embodies and demonstrates the instruction, because they saw Jesus teach the people, heal the sick, cast out demons, as said in Mark, Matthew chapter 4. They saw that Jesus had compassion on the people, and that he resisted the spiritual tyranny of the religious authorities, Matthew chapter 9, verse 36, and chapter 23. They saw him pray and wished to learn of prayer from him. They heard his prayer to the Father, for instance, in John 17. And when they heard him praying in Luke chapter 11, they asked him, how should we pray? And he gave them the Lord's Prayer. Jesus loved them to the end, and so they personally experienced Jesus' love and care in John 13. And he encouraged Christians to love one another on account of the model of love that he provided for them. 1 John 3.16 and chapter 4, 7-21. And they would see Jesus prove willing to suffer and die for sin. This was such a mark on Simon Peter that in 1 Peter chapter 2, he would say that uh, suffering uh, unjustly for doing good is something we're called to because we have a, that Jesus gave us a model we would follow in his steps. And this is how it can be that the Hebrew author can consider Jesus the embodiment of God's character in Hebrews 1.3. The disciples experienced this. And in 1 John 1, uh, 1 through 4, so powerful to note how John frames what he had gone through. That which we, was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim to you, that you may have fellowship with us, as indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Notice he didn't say, we just heard things Jesus had to say. That's part of the things which they heard, but also what the, he saw, what he touched, what he fully and completely experienced. So Jesus didn't merely tell the twelve and show them. He provided, but that was very important in and of itself. They could see it. And in, when they were older and they were going through difficulties, they would remember the things that Jesus had done. That would give them strength and hope for the future. But it wasn't enough for him to do it just himself. He also gave them opportunity to learn by experience. And it happens earlier than we might imagine. In Matthew chapter 10, we had read earlier uh, the names of the apostles from Matthew chapter 10. And the reason that's given is Matthew's then going to say that he sends them out. 
two by two, to the various cities and towns and villages of Galilee, with a limited commission to proclaim the upcoming kingdom to these neighboring cities and villages. And so this is happening in Galilee before he is revealed to them as a Christ, before he tells them about his death, maybe very early on. We, we don't know exactly how early, but definitely uh, not just before the end. And by no metric are they in any way ready or prepared for this. But they go out with what they knew and they gain valuable experience in the process. And by commissioning the twelve at this point, Jesus provides them an opportunity to learn while he is present throughout the process. So they'll go out, they'll do this, they'll get experience, and they'll come back. They would have made mistakes. They would have failed. But they would have learned from those experiences. And then when they would watch Jesus do what he did, they would have a better appreciation for what he was doing and how he would handle situations because of their own limited experiences that they had. That it would, it would be so much more richer and fuller to see what he was doing. And above all this, the, the form of instruction he gives them are relentlessly practical and focused. He gives them the ethics and guidelines of the kingdom. He demonstrates what God would have them to do for the rest of their lives. And whenever they'd be confronted with any challenge or issue, they could think back about how Jesus handled or dealt with a certain situation. He expected them to learn from what they went through, but he also, as we can see in chapter 10, explained what they were going to go through. Hey, if they've called the master house Beelzebub, what are they going to do to all of those in his house? They're going to think that by hurting you, that they're doing some glory to God. It's not going to be easy. He tells them they're going to deal with these circumstances and what they would have to do in those circumstances. But he also, and this is very touching in John 13 through 16, the whole purpose of that whole dialogue, is to reassure them and comfort them because he knew when they died they were going to go absolutely nuts and crazy. What what happened? They could very easily get discouraged. And so he wanted to give these last words to them to say, I'm not leaving you. I'm not abandoning you as orphans. I will come back to you. And to 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 make sure that they knew what was going on to the best of their his ability. It's also interesting to note that Jesus does not dwell on obscure topics when he's teaching. He doesn't chase rabbits and tangents. That everything that he does has a purpose. And everything he does. Now it's also easy to imagine that once Jesus was raised and ascended, the disciples became the apostles and received the Spirit and they proclaimed the gospel. That would be it. Alright, they're ready to go. But that's not something that the text itself would support. It's very interesting how, the, how Luke begins the book of Acts. He says, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Talking about the gospel. We would think the gospel is the end of that process, because afterwards he's raised up. Luke looks at it only as the beginning. The apostles would keep learning through their experiences. In Acts chapter 10, verses 9 through 16, it's the Lord, Jesus, who sends this vision to Peter so Peter would understand that God would welcome Gentiles into the kingdom as Gentiles. In 2 Corinthians 12, Paul learned humility and value and weakness through experiencing the thorn in the flesh and hearing Jesus' instruction about it. My power is made perfect in weakness. My grace is sufficient for you. And all of what the apostles experienced and taught is in the Spirit, but it worked to their sanctification and worked to develop their discipleship further. And so that Jesus continues to teach them even after he is in heaven. And he trains the twelve through this holistic program that incorporates a lot of different elements. He instructed them directly. He demonstrated what was to be done. He commissioned them to participate in the work themselves. He prayed for them. He was willing to let them work even before they had a full understanding. And their failures didn't automatically disqualify them, but provided learning opportunities. And even after he ascended, 
and the apostles were doing the work they were commissioned to do, he provided further instruction and demonstrations. In all of these ways, the disciples were empowered to become the apostles. Yes, the Holy Spirit provided so much benefit. But even there in John 14, 25, and 26, what the Spirit was bringing back to their remembrance what Jesus had said and did. So Jesus knew his mission and purpose. And part of that mission was to train others to proclaim the gospel after he ascended. While the twelve that he chose would likely not be the ones we would choose, he knew exactly what he was doing. Over a few years, these men went from being regular Jews who were fishermen or tax collectors or whatever, to bold proclaimers of the gospel of Christ. They had learned from Jesus' instruction and example their own experiences and presence. The Sadducees knew that they had been with Jesus in Acts 4. The apostles recognized that future generations would not be able to experience Jesus' life, death, and resurrection as they had, but knew the gospel would need to be proclaimed after their death. And so they themselves trained others to proclaim that message as well. To men like Mark and Paul, who, on, who all would then give it to Timothy and Titus and so on. To this day, we must do that same thing. We must be trained by Jesus according to the message of the apostles and seek to train others in the message and his proclamation. Now, I personally uh, have uh, been doing a lot of volunteering with the Boy Scouts of America, and last year received a significant training in the, what's called the Woodbatch Program, which is an intensive and immersive leadership program. And whereas I've not had a lot of uh, training in the business world, uh, many of my fellow uh, scouts going, scouters going through that training had and commented that the things that they were learning in this uh, particular context were very consistent with, with those methods. Now, it's interesting that in that training, we weren't just instructed about leadership by presentation. We were kept in small groups and were supposed to demonstrate leadership principles by experiencing various challenges and trials. That the whole environment and experiences were designed to reinforce the instruction in ways that mere words could ever do. In fact, I could meditate many times on many of the principles I had been taught in other forms of, of, of leadership training, but it didn't really click and it wasn't as visceral as through this immersive experience. And and in all their work of trying to train people, both leaders and and, and youth, uh, the Scouts came up with this idea of the EDGE model, uh, E-D-G-E, explain, demonstrate, guide, enable. And they said the ultimate purpose of leadership is, in fact, to become replaceable, to and so instruct and empower others to take over the responsibilities to render one unnecessary. Isn't this exactly the kind of thing that we see manifest in Jesus' training of the Twelve? He explained, he demonstrated, he guided them and enabled them to do it themselves so that he could ascend and they would continue on with the work. So we do well to give very serious consideration, not only to the substance of what Jesus has, has instructed, but also how he went about training the Twelve and why he did it, so that we can effectively become replaceable to empower future generations to continue to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Again, so thankful that you've joined us. We hope that you've been benefited by this. If you'd like to uh, continue this conversation or, or explore other con uh, discussions that we've had on, on a similar subject or other subjects or learn more about uh, what Jesus has accomplished for us and about the faith in Christ, uh, maybe you'd like to join us for a Bible study or for an assembly. You can learn more about us at VanishingToChrist.org. We're also on social media, or you can contact me personally at my website, deverbovitae.com. That's www.deverbovitae.com. We again thank you. Have a great day.